Let's now turn for our scripture reading in our text this morning to uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and we'll read the first uh, six verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we're beginning our uh, studies of this book of Ephesians. And uh, you may know that uh, this is one of Paul's letter letters that uh, actually was written uh, while in prison in Rome. And it's a letter that is addressed to uh, believers in this uh, most important, uh, significant city uh, of the Roman Empire, uh, a city of Asia, which uh, would be in modern-day Turkey, Turkey today. But it's a city that was famous for a, n- a number of reasons. Uh, within this city was the, the famous temple of the, the fertility goddess, Artemis, or Diana. And it's also a city which was the center of emperor worship. You know, that the Caesar was regarded as having divine characteristics. And uh, he was given divine worship. And there were temples devoted to to his worship. It was a pagan city. It was characterized by idolatry and sin. Such that the character and the conduct of Christians would certainly stand out in such a place, much as the character and conduct of Christians uh, stands out today in the world in which we live. The light of the gospel had entered this city. It entered that darkness. Paul, uh, in his first missionary journey, came there with Aquila and Priscilla, uh, whom he had left there for a time. We read about that in Acts chapter 18 and then in chapter 19, we learn that on his third missionary journey, he returned there and he spent uh, two years there in the school of Tyrannus, uh, teaching and preaching there so that they might be established in the faith, that the church might be increased and, and built up. And then we have this letter to the church there in Ephesus. And it is a letter that is rich in doctrine and rich in practical uh, application from Paul's prayers for the church that are recorded in chapters one and three, we might see that that his aim in this letter is not to address any particular problem or or uh, controversy or error that had arisen in the church. That's true of uh, some of Paul's letters, but rather positively from uh, his own prayers, we might see that that his aim. Uh, was to lead the church into a richer and uh, an experiential knowledge of the triune God. And also as that pertains to their everyday life and 
in the world in which they live, in relationships in the church, in the family, marriage, and home. So certainly we can see from the outset this is a book that's worthy of, uh, of our study, and it's worthy for us to pursue that goal of a, a deeper, more experiential knowledge of God and how that then pertains to our daily lives in the world in which we live. But from the very beginning, we see from our text that we are brought into the presence of God. In Paul's address to the Ephesians, in the opening verses, uh, he brings us into the presence of God as worshipers, extolling him for the glory of his grace, glorious grace, abounding grace, grace uh, that's loaded with doctrinal content, but a doctrine that's bursting with doxology, doctrine expressed in the form of worship and praise and wonder. That's what we have in our text this morning. Blessed be God for the blessings of his grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 begins, or verse 3 begins, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. This is an acknowledgement that God indeed is the ever-blessed one God is perfect in all his attributes. And this great and glorious and eternally happy God has manifested himself, has chosen to reveal himself. Not so that his happiness might be enhanced or increased, but that his glory might be revealed. That creatures made in his image might know the blessedness of knowing him that they might acknowledge his perfection and greatness and glory, that they might praise him as recipients of the knowledge of God and the wondrous blessings of grace to sinners so that they might respond in praise and adoration. That word blessed, as it's uh, referred to God, is is really a word that expresses praise and thankfulness, but there's a sense in which there's a warmth to it. Uh, there's a sense in which it makes clear that the heart is engaged, even more so than with the words, praise the Lord. We bless our God for the wonder of his grace. And this passage enumerates those tremendous blessings of his grace. And we're going to consider then the riches of his grace as we see particularly in verse 4 that it is grace that's rooted in eternity. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now that's language of election. That's language of God's choice. And by the way, this is a great passage to uh, refer to. It's good for us to know where this teaching of election is found in Scripture. And uh, it's good to know how it's presented here in this passage. It's not proclaimed as something that's... Uh, uh, doubtful or something to dispute, but it's proclaimed as a subject of amazing wonder and worship. Unconditional election. That means that our salvation is by God's initiative 
but it also means that it is not based on anything that makes us better than others. It's not based on anything that makes us more uh, worthy or worthy in any way. It's not based on anything that makes us choosable in contrast to others. And actually nothing makes this so clear as the as the the timing of God's choice, if we can even use that that language of timing, because our text says that he chose us before the foundation of, a wor- of the world. That means that he had chose us uh, from eternity, before he created time itself as we know it, before there was anything other than the infinite and eternal triune God. He chose us before time. He chose us before we existed at all except in the mind and in the purpose of God. And it was then that our that our destiny was determined. We were predestined, we read in verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons. And this choice, this predestination, was according to God's will. It was God's will that we heard the gospel. It was God's will if we were nurtured and raised in a Christian home with all the benefits of such nurture. It was God's will that we heard the gospel through whatever means God might have used in your life to bring you to hear the message of salvation. It was God's will that we should respond in faith. It's not our own doing. God's choice precedes our choice. Yes, those who believe in Christ believe so with the activity of their mind and heart and will. But the exercise of their will is the result of a previous will. And it's not theirs. It's the will of God. God's choice not only precedes our choice, but God's choice explains our choice. In verse 11 it says, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And in the connection here, there's no question that the counsel of His will is that which accounts for our predestination. It was according to His purpose. And that means that it was not because of some holiness, it's not some goodness that we must have done in our youth or childhood, that explains the fact that we're Christians. It's nothing that God saw in us that moved Him to choose us unto salvation. There was no holiness that made us worthy. That doesn't mean that God isn't concerned with holiness. That doesn't mean that God is not concerned that we should not only be called saints, but that we should be faithful, as the Ephesians were addressed here. But that holiness is not the cause of God's election. That holiness is the goal and the result of election. Isn't that as clear as day? Isn't that as clear as words can make it where it says in verse 4, as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. It's a verse that takes us from God's eternal choice from before the foundation of the world to our eternal destiny in His presence as holy and blameless without fault whatsoever. It's presented as the goal of God's electing love. 
And that magnifies his grace. As opposed to any kind of human merit. As opposed to anything that we deserve. In fact, grace really by definition, it excludes the idea of, of merit. Grace by definition is undeserved favor. In fact, we hear that, that kind of language also in the, the book of Romans in, uh, the 11th, the 11th chapter with respect to a remnant, uh, among the people of Israel that God has chosen according to his election. It says, even at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And then the next verse says, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. In other words, there's an absolute, utter contrast or opposition between grace which is an unmerited gift of God's sovereign purpose and love, and any kind of work that we might do, any kind of goodness that might be found in us, anything that would make us to differ from others, grace by definition is the absolute and utter opposite and stands in stark contrast to any kind of work or goodness that would serve as the basis for God's election. This is a remnant according to the election of grace. You could read Romans 9 to uh, hear more of the wonder of that sovereign grace elaborated there. And that also means, brothers and sisters, that in, in electing us to salvation, God chose us out of the sin and misery into which our fall in Adam would bring us. And has brought us. Although the election took place before the fall. Because we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. But it's an election that takes into account the reality of that condition of misery and sin. Out of which God would save us. As those who would be involved and included in our fall in Adam. In Second Timothy chapter 1. Uh, we read of this grace that was given to us, manifested in the holy calling that uh, is described in verse 9. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Again, there's the utter contrast there. But according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ and manifested through preaching. I know and you know that the very mention of the doctrine of election for many people raises all kinds of uh, problems and anxious thoughts and questions and arguments perhaps. We might say, yeah, the doctrine of election, it's full of difficulties. Maybe best to leave it alone. Well, Paul didn't see it as something that was full of difficulties or problematic or something to leave it alone, leave alone. But he proclaims it in the form of wonder and adoration and worship as he extols a God of such amazing grace. Now to appreciate even the riches of God's electing love, we have to pay attention to more details of our text, right? And that means we need to pay attention to the significance 
of the fact that this grace is described here as a grace which is in Jesus Christ. We already heard it in that, that brief uh, reference that I gave to Second Timothy 1 verse 9. It says, according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. In fact, this little phrase, in Christ, or in Him, or in the Beloved, it's repeated again and again in uh, the verses before us and further beyond in this chapter. In verse 1, this letter is addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus. Yeah, that's their geographical location. They live in that city. But it's addressed to those who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And then verse 3, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Then again in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. It's been observed that probably the most basic and the most comprehensive uh, biblical description of what it means to be a Christian is in this little phrase, in Christ. Now, Christians are described in various ways in the Bible. They're believers in the book of Acts. They're referred to as those who are followers of the way. It's actually in the book of Acts that we're told of the first instance in which the followers of Jesus were called Christians, probably as a, as a, as a term of, of a ridicule, little Christ or followers of Jesus or saints. Yeah, these are all ways in which, uh, believers are referred to in scripture, but perhaps one of the most basic and most, uh, comprehensive in terms of its richness in terms of how Christians are described is by this little phrase, in Christ. Paul used it that way. I forget who it is with reference to it, but he describes him as being in Christ before me. But that means that we need, in order to appreciate, we need to appreciate the, uh, the significance of this language. What does it mean? Well, our text, even with this language of election in Christ, takes us up to God's eternal plan. God is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that might throw us if we do not remember that that the Lord Jesus Christ is true man. And as true man, God was his God in whom he trusted, to whom he prayed. But he's also the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With respect to his humanity, God is his God. But with respect to his eternal deity, God is his eternal Father. And our text takes us to that eternal plan, which has sometimes been referred to as the covenant of redemption. From eternity, God's purpose to save lost sinners included how he would do it, as well as his counsel to do it. And that meant that the eternal Son of God would come uh, into this world. He would come to us clothed in our own humanity, in our own nature. 
And he would take our place under the law that we have broken. And he would suffer the penalty for the sins that we have committed. And would face the judgment and condemnation that we deserve. And so, by this work of the eternal Son of God in our nature, he would raise us up. He would raise us up and up and up from a state of misery and condemnation to admit us, to bring us into those heavenly places in which he himself now is as the exalted Savior and in whom we already virtually are present with him in heaven. Why? Because we are so united to him, so joined to him in God's eternal purpose that all that he accomplished for us is ours as if we had accomplished it ourselves. You see, Christ would secure every grace for His people. And we can look at those various blessings that are enumerated here. Uh, he chose us, uh, predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. Why does it say by Jesus Christ? Well, to make clear that our adoption as children, is through the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, by whose merits we receive this grace of adoption. We're predestined to adoption in Jesus Christ. We're redeemed through His blood, as we read in verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. In Him we have an eternal inheritance, verse 11. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance. The indwelling Spirit is in Him, verse 13. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now I realize that we're going beyond our text, uh, strictly speaking, because I... You know, identified our text as the first six verses, but I'm doing that, doing so, uh, because this point of our text of the significance of in Christ is, it's really impossible to grasp without seeing it as at the very heart and soul of what it means to be saved. And it's the ground, it's the basis for every spiritual blessing. It's union with Christ. This is how Christians must know themselves. You know, there's endless talk in our day about, about identity, right? Identity politics. We hear people uh, uh, identifying themselves. The big issue is how people uh, identify themselves with respect to gender questions, with respect to all kinds of, all kinds of issues, pronouns. As Christians, we need to be careful at this point. And by that I mean we ought not simply to just take up the language of our world in this connection. And say, well, I identify as a Christian. Or I find my identity in Jesus. Now, again, properly understood, I'm not, I'm not quarreling with the idea, but I think, you know, when we adopt the language of the world, the danger is that, that we, uh, miscommunicate something that we, and we think wrongly about something. 
You know, studies have shown that this language of identity is a rather recent thing uh, in the church. And even the language of identifying ourselves, well, that's a rather rather recent uh, terminology. And I suppose the danger is that in identifying ourselves as Christians, we might give the Im- impression that this is just another preference that we follow. And the focus is upon me and how I identify myself, how I find my identity. You find yours this way, well, I find mine that way. But the issue is not how we identify ourselves. It's what God has done in His grace. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that He has adopted us, that He has chosen us and accepted us, He has made us saints. And it's all in Christ. And our response to that grace is, yes, to know ourselves in that way, to believe these wondrous things and to bless God for it. Union with Jesus Christ. That's really at the at the heart of our understanding of God's grace. And in that connection, we consider thirdly that it is grace of a near and dear relationship to God. And that's because salvation is restoration. Salvation is restoration to God. The Bible never allows us, God never allows us to think of His grace simply as an escape. An escape from guilt, an escape from misery, an escape from our personal problems, or even an escape from hell itself. Yes, it is all those things. But that's not the, that's not the focus, and that doesn't, that certainly doesn't exhaust or really, uh, reach to the fullness of the meaning of what it means to be saved. God's saving love is an embracing love. Yes, He loves us in mercy but He loves us back into His fellowship. He blesses us with the shining of His face. He blesses us with His favor in a relationship to us. He comes to us and He pronounces grace and peace. That's the peace of reconciliation. That's the peace of restoration to His fellowship, into His family. And see how prominent this is. See how pronounced it is, even in the the language of our text. What is the goal of election in verse 4? That we should be holy and without blame before Him. Before Him. In relationship to Him. How does it describe uh, what is at the heart of, of predestination? Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. How does it describe the the purpose of adoption? He adopted us to Himself. To Himself. That's relational language. That's the language of love. See how the pleasure of God's will in this is described there in verse... uh, It's according to the good pleasure of His will. It's not simply a cold kind of determination that God and His counsel decided. No, it was His good pleasure. It was His delight. He predestined us 
yes, to a glorious future, but our text brings us to the origin of that predestination, not simply in terms of his will, but in terms of his love. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. See how that's related to the completeness of our acceptance there in verse 6. He made us accepted in the Beloved. In the Beloved. And again, that's the language of union with Jesus. But when we think of this language, the Beloved, who is that referring to? That's Jesus. And He is, first of all, the Beloved of God. And the great wonder of that is that we are accepted in the Beloved. So that when God looks upon His Beloved Son with an infinite love, He not only sees His Son, but He sees us in union with Him as those who are participants, recipients, those who share in the very love that He has for His Son. We all have our insecurities, I dare say. If uh, someone wants to challenge me on that, I'm willing to hear that. I certainly have my insecurities. I was reminded of even the past week at Synod, you know, uh, caring what people thought about me, caring uh, whether I spoke too much or what I said was wrong or, uh, you know, you know, we can often care too much about what people think about us. And that can leave us dejected when we think they think badly of us. We want people to like us. That's a natural thing, isn't it? But it can also mean that people are far too big in our estimation. And when that happens, God is far too small. And we can fail to honor God by, by doubting or distrusting or having suspicious or shallow views of His love for us of our acceptance in His sight, despite the fact that we're often foolish children, that we're sinful and wayward. And every day we we acknowledge that before Him. But we are to know ourselves also in relationship to Him as His beloved children, as accepted. And you see, brothers and sisters, it's only as we keep that in mind, it's only as we return to that again and again and again that we will bless Him, that we will abound in this thanksgiving and, and praise as we ought, that we will glorify Him for His grace to us. This is grace for His everlasting praise, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Grace that is so lavish. Grace that is so rich, so abundant. Grace that involves so many benefits and so many blessings that we cannot exhaust their richness or their meaning. Glorious grace. At this time of year, I hope that we remember we don't have any official formal celebration of the Protestant Reformation uh, this year. But I hope we don't forget it. I don't, I hope we don't, uh, forget how God restored the pure gospel to his church and made clear again those, those great themes of his grace in his redemption through Christ. Grace alone, right? Through Christ alone. There are others through faith alone, scripture alone. Certainly our passage emphasizes grace. 
and it emphasizes Christ, but it also ought to lead us to that fifth uh, sola of the Reformation, to God alone be the glory. Because our salvation is all of grace. God deserves all the credit, and we ought to abound in acknowledging Him with thanksgiving from the heart so that we we learn to stir ourselves up and say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. And to remember that, to stir ourselves up so that we can enter into the the spirit of this doxology of praise. Blessed be God for such grace, such grace rooted in eternity, such grace bestowed in Christ, such grace that brings us into a near and dear relationship to Him that should lead us indeed to abound in giving glory to Him. Amen.